episode 219 Global from Asia podcast. Welcome to the Global from Asia podcast, where the daunting process of running an international business is broken down into straight up actionable advice. And now your host, Michael Michelini. Today's podcast is brought to you by Aurelia Pay. I use them personally for sending money to my Chinese suppliers from Hong Kong. It's a cross-border payment solution between China, Hong Kong, and Southeast Asia. So when I need to make a payment to a Chinese supplier, I just hop online to place the remittance, pay to the Aurelia Pay's Hong Kong-based bank account, and Aurelia Pay will settle RMB within the same business day. So check them out online at www.aureliapay.com, A-U-R-E-L-I-A-P-A-Y.com, or check them out linked in our show notes. Doing today's intro on the Hong Kong MTR. Doot, 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 doot. It's one of their trademarks. I wonder if that's a trademark sound. I guess they got that in the Shenzhen side too. So thank you everybody for tuning in to another Global from Asia podcast. Doing my best to keep up with this. And I enjoy it too. On the way to Sonar, Hong Kong. It's like a music festival uh, and also speakers. Got Devin, the founder, one of the founders at Shadow Factory Virtual Reality in Hong Kong. I do content creation with. Will be speaking there. Some catching some of that. It was some amazing content as always. <laughs> and we're at episode two hundred and nineteen. Last week I got my numbers mixed up. The numbers are getting so high in this in this uh, interview series. I'm uh, losing track, but. We got great stuff as always. And thank you everybody for supporting the Cross Border Summit. Ticket sales are doing great. And we are so excited. It's even a little bit heavier on the VIP side. So we got some ballers coming. I'm really, really excited. Phil, if you're listening, Phil in South Africa, I really look forward to meeting you. Try to get Frederick from China Imports Hall down. We'll see. But see, he uh, had a great time in Vietnam last week. And just focused on the summit. I'm an event planner, but just reducing the quantity and increasing the quality. All right, and now for this week's show, we got Andres from BoutiqueJapan.com, an internet entrepreneur that does high-end tours in Japan for people visiting that want great experiences. And I tried to do this in person when I was with him in Bangkok, but we ended up doing this on the call. I know, I don't know if you guys can tell the difference between in-person interviews I do or Skype recorded, online recorded calls. Some people say they can't, but I feel it's different. But this is an online call interview with Andres, who is doing amazing things and has got the up and downs, as many entrepreneurs do, in their quest to build a global business. So let's tune in. All right, thank you everybody for tuning in to the Global From Asia interview series podcast. We have one, we've been working on this one for a while. <laughs> Andres Zuleta from Boutique Japan. Thanks for being here, Andres. Thanks so much for having me. Finally made it happen. Yeah, we made it happen. We were uh, trying to do it when we were both at the DC event in Bangkok in October, but uh, you know, we made it happen. So it's great to have you on the show. And to share your experiences, you have built a travel agency 
with Japan. So, you know, of course, that's Asia. And people actually have been enjoying sometimes, we were a lot of times talking about China, Hong Kong, but, you know, we've been trying to kind of venture in other parts of Asia. So we've done some other topics in Japan that people have enjoyed. So it's kind of like the trend here. And, and uh, I'm happy to have you on the show. And we also, you did a great speech. I, watched uh, about managing your business when you were in uh, in Barcelona. So we're uh, connecting each other around the world here. Um, and it's great to have yeah. you. Yeah, and I'm definitely always happy to talk about Japan. Yeah, it's quite a cool place. I've only been to Okinawa, actually, which doesn't maybe even count, really. It's like a, it's like a resort area down south, closer to China, actually. Yeah, I mean, I would say it definitely counts, but yeah, it's it's very different from, you know, the mainland for sure. True. So, let's let's get started. Uh so Boutique Japan, how did how did this get started or how did you of course you were in Japan? How what's the what's the story here? So, you know, basically I had lived in Japan for a few years and I was studying Japanese and just working side jobs to to support my Japanese studying habit. And, you know, I was kind of at this point in my life where I was trying to figure out, you know, what was the next step. And at the time, you know, I was working at this restaurant actually at night because I was playing in a band while studying Japanese and working at a restaurant at night. And it was run by these Japanese surfer guys. And through conversations with them, I came up with the idea or we came up with the idea of of me starting a company that would support Japanese surfers when they went to the U.S. and Mexico to help them plan their trips. Interesting. So anyway, that business didn't go anywhere, um, but that kind of set me on a path where I became interested in the travel industry as an industry. And I was trying to start another business in that space. And I met someone at a party who said, well, you know, if you don't really know about the industry, maybe you should have you considered working in the industry to learn about it? And I said, huh, that's actually a really good idea. I had not actually considered that, though it seems obvious in retrospect. So I started looking for a job and I I ended up finding a a position with a great company in San Diego um, where I learned about the industry. And, you know, eventually, you know, it took a couple of years, took a few years actually, but I came back to my original idea of starting a business and for a combination of reasons, which you know, I'd be happy to get into if you'd like, um, I ended up choosing to specialize in Japan only. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's uh, it seems like a very exotic place, and I I guess it makes you stronger with your offer because a lot of travel agencies are you know kind of broad, right? They can they can take anywhere you want to go, or maybe in a bigger region. So it is interesting to say how why did you specifically focus on Japan? I mean, so one of the biggest reasons was I just am endlessly fascinated by Japan. So it, I knew, or I figured it would never get boring. I just always enjoyed talking to clients about Japan, planning trips, to researching destinations, um, you know, researching by traveling there. So that was one thing. A second reason was, you know, I, was, I was, felt like I could at it. Like I could actually stand out in a crowded marketplace and be one of the best, if not the best, just based on my kind of unique background and experience with Japan specifically. And then another one was that I just found that, you know, at the company, at the travel company where I had been working, you know, we didn't just do Japan. We did most of the world, pretty much only exotic destinations, but all over the planet. Um, 
And I was just finding that Japan just seemed like a really good niche in this space because even really experienced travelers who go to Europe or go to Latin America or plan their own trip to Australia, for some reason or for a variety of reasons, when they start planning their Japan trip, it there's certain things about Japan that just seem complicated and actually are a little bit complicated just because the culture is so different and the language is so different. And so it tends to actually... Well, the country attracts interesting travelers to begin with, but then, you know, even kind of the most sophisticated type of travelers will not hesitate to reach out to a travel company or a consultant to help with their trip. That is true, right? It's definitely uh, harder for people to do it yourself uh, if you've ever been to Japan or other parts of Asia. Plus, it seems like a pretty... When I think Japan, I think expensive in my mind, right? So I feel... You probably, if you're planning to travel there, you probably have a bigger budget and you're expecting to pay more anyway, right? So, yeah, I forgot to mention that. That was also, that was also definitely a factor. Was, you know, I always tell the story that I had this coworker at my old company and she was an amazing salesperson. And the two of us were always the top two in terms of sales. But, we would compare notes at the end of the month and, you know, I sold 10 trips. She sold 10 trips. Most of mine were Japan. Most of hers were, you know, Peru. And my numbers were just astronomically higher than hers. And so, you know, a little light bulb went off when I realized that. There you go. That's a, yeah. I mean, I, even for me, I feel like I would, if I'm thinking Japan, I'm thinking I'm going to spend a lot of money, you know, so it uh, seems like yeah. I mean, it's not as expensive as it used to be, you know. It's not, and it's not even as expensive as people think, which is actually great, you know. But it does still have. Well, it's you know within the context of Asia, it's expensive, but it's just not expensive compared to some places in Europe now and Australia, for example. But yeah, it's still it's still kind of a big ticket destination for sure. Nice, and you know, I think. We both are in the DC and uh, you were on the Tropical MBA show, which was awesome. And you talked about your experiences with uh, doing a par- partnership with your girlfriend. And I know there was a breakup and now you're back together. And I, I hope this is okay to share <laughs> on the show. Or, But I know yeah, we absolutely. have a lot of entrepreneur, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, especially you know doing business internationally. A lot of times you... You meet somebody, you know, we talk about China, Hong Kong a lot. So somebody will have like a Chinese girlfriend and then they'll kind of base a lot of business around this, this, uh, relationship. And, you know, I've had friends that have bars and they put the bar in the name of the Chinese girlfriend, which seems crazy. But of course, it's cheaper also to register companies with a, a local person. And I always warn people the risks you're taking, but I don't think you got into it like that, but maybe you could share a little bit of these experiences and also we'll link to the Tropical MBA interview too that people could listen to with that for more. Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely talked about it in in a bit more detail there, but um, my situation was a little bit different than that because we were both from the US. Um, So it wasn't a situation where I started it with someone from Japan. So we, we started it together and, you know, when we started it, we actually moved to Japan and then we were nomads together for about a year and a half or two years and, you know, living in Japan and Thailand and Mexico and doing the whole, the whole, you know, typical (laughs) 
thing that you do if you wanted to start a location independent business, you just start traveling. So we did that for a while, but then she got tired of that lifestyle and just wanted a home base and wanted to have a community. And, and frankly, I just wasn't at that point. I actually felt like I wanted to keep traveling. I didn't have the travel bug out of my system yet. And so we ended up splitting up. Like I, I think I probably talked about more in that other interview and long story short, you know, about a year or so went by and we realized we were still in love. So we ended up getting back together. Great. And I also got, I have to say, I, I got to the point where she was just a little bit later where I don't feel like endless travel anymore. I love having a base. I love having, you know, a place to call home. And then I still have to travel, obviously. So I'm constantly planning trips and going on trips, but coming back, not being a nomad. True. I think a lot of us go through that phase. I think it might be a mix of, you know, a mix of age and maturity maybe, or, you know, kind of getting out of your system. But yeah, I think a lot of us are in the same boat uh, and to have a base is important. And well, I'm glad you guys are back together and, and, uh, it's always a, it's always a risk, right, to do business with uh, you know. I, my wife helps me a lot in my business here, Global from Asia, and and uh, she's always been supportive of various ventures I've been in. So it's good, but it's also you know I think listeners should also you know pre- weigh the pros and cons of doing business with your uh, with a like a romantic relationship. I think right it could be risky. It could be, yeah, it definitely could be. I mean, you know, I would say I don't think I would have done anything differently necessarily but one pro of the fact that we now you know have kind of complementary lives is that we're not talking about clients in our free time okay <laughs> you know yeah um so so yeah i mean it's, it's i'm definitely not against you know the idea of couples starting businesses i think it can work really well but you know there's definitely pros and cons for sure i think yeah of course this could be a, a whole show multiple shows in, a, in itself but uh my quick f- feedback or tip is at least try to break it up by departments in a way you know i think with with my wife and i like we have cl- clear she well it's also pretty clear she helps on a more china side and i help more on the international side that's or at least in, in any business i think having people with their clear roles so there's not as much overlap on a regular basis with decisions and and uh, other parts could make it a little bit easier too and so Let's move to the next point. And so obviously you're not Japanese and you did this business kind of based on Japan. So how how was it to kind of uh, deal with the culture there and management styles with, uh, with local people you're working with? Well, I'm familiar with the culture based on years of having lived there and then years of having gone back and forth. And then before that, years of having studied the culture and the language. So I have a sense of just how how best to interact with people when I'm in Japan, you know, to kind of have the most ideal outcomes. That was a really kind of vague way of saying saying it, but I guess that's almost like a Japanese way of kind of phrasing things. So I haven't found it difficult. I think, you know, the key to doing business in Japan for me is to 
really just always be aware of your surroundings and just context. And, you know, definitely just being respectful is extremely helpful. Um, but, you know, I don't find as a foreigner that I'm subjected to kind of the same etiquette requirements that Japanese people are subjected to. And I definitely find that to be an advantage because I think if, you know, if they were treating me as a Japanese person, it would be very different. So I'm seen as kind of an outsider, but, you know, there's, there's a respect there. They realize that I, you know, I know what I'm talking about and I speak the language and I have a good understanding of the culture. Um, So that's very helpful. But, you know, I, I think that one of the things that I realized after living in Japan for two years was that I was never going to be Japanese. And that was, you know, a huge disappointment to me at the time because I thought that the more I studied the Japanese language, I thought eventually, you know, people would kind of start to look at me and say like, oh, you know, you're, you're kind of like one of us, mm-hmm. <laughs> which never happened, you know, as fluent as I got. So, so that outsider status, I find a little bit liberating so that when I go to conferences in Japan or when I meet with suppliers in Japan, I'm not trying necessarily to conform to mm-hmm. you know, try to pretend like I'm Japanese doing business in Japan. Yeah. I really just come in um, kind of like as a proud but humble and respectful outsider, if that makes sense. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel similarities. Well, I guess, you know, China, you know, maybe it's, it's Asia business in general, but it's, I feel, I feel similar with you here in China that there, there'll always be a foreigner, no matter you're married here, you have kids here, you speak the language here, you've, you know, it's, uh, it's just similar. And, uh, I just also want to bring up, uh, we had a previous interview with Davide Rossi, which is, uh, he's doing a pretty good travel company for educational for students exchange programs. Um, and, uh, he was on the show and he says, you have to learn Japanese to do business there. He was saying basically like that was like his biggest suggestion that uh, if you, if you uh, want to do business there, you have to really know the language in order to really kind of like make things happen. So I don't know if you kind of seem like you hinted kind of feel like you're agreeing with that in your, your answer here with, you know, knowing the culture and language and a lot of previous years studying I'm not sure. I'm not actually sure if I agree with that, but I'm not sure I disagree with it. It's hard for me to say because I do speak Japanese, so I haven't had the experience of trying to business without speaking Japanese. But I will say that I, I feel like a lot of this business could be done just in English. Um, I think I think it's more like the cultural norms and knowing when to ask for things and how to ask for things that is maybe even more helpful. But I don't know. Maybe for the tiebreaker, you can ask Chris from Tokyo Cheapo. Okay. If uh, if he th- if he thinks that you need to, I mean, obviously it, it's beneficial. You know, I wouldn't want to go into a meeting and you know try to do business in Japan and feel like I don't speak a lick of Japanese. But it's not something that you know. While I definitely use Japanese, it's not. It doesn't feel like an everyday essential necessarily because most of our communications are taking place with with clients. You know rather than people in Japan. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I have to 
still admit my Chinese, my Chinese, well, for me in China, my Chinese still isn't that that good as I want it to be. Um, but I think it also depends on what your customer base is, right? If you're selling to foreigners or doing business with English speaking people and more like the China side or, you know, Japan side for you would be more the local side. It might be a little bit easier to not speak the language because you're the customer instead of like the sales. But I think if you're trying to sell, trying to sell to someone in that culture, it's pretty hard to sell if you don't speak the language. But then again, it also depends on the industry. Like, I think it's similar in Japan, but in China, education, you know, Chinese love to learn from foreigners. So, you know, you don't have to speak uh, Chinese to sell, you know, English training or teacher services to Chinese. But uh, so I guess it depends on the industry too and, and what kind of position you are in a business. Yeah, I know. I know, for example, um, so I don't have my information wrong, but I believe there's a guy in Brooklyn who has a company and they they sell tea, Japanese tea, like pretty high end, kind of rare Japanese tea, which is really trendy and I think you know an interesting niche, and people pay a lot of money for it. Cool. Um, and my understanding from just reading about his story is that he's just started learning Japanese now, so he's had this business and he's had these connections in the tea world in Japan, but more based on a mutual appreciation and and a deep knowledge of the tea, maybe. And I'm guessing he, I have no idea, maybe he goes with interpreters, but you know, I saw him post on social media one time a few months ago. You know, I'm so excited to start learning this language so I can actually talk with my suppliers. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know, I don't I, know. I think that goes back to he's the customer, not the seller, so... Similar in China, a lot ton of people buy from Chinese factories to sell on like Amazon or other places. They're not as you know. If you're trying to buy from, you know, you're going. He's going to these tea companies with money. You know, he's not trying to get money from them. So I think that's true. I think yeah. that's the bigger difference. Uh, you know, a lot of tons of people come to China to buy from factories, and there's no so many of them. Most of them don't speak um, Chinese because. Obviously, you know, Japanese also is a very complex language, so they don't expect you to. But I think if you're trying to sell to these people, it's it's more required to uh, be able to communicate with them. In, Definitely. In well, also, I think that that brings up you know a question that people often ask me. Oh, you know, are you going to start the inverse company of you know sending Japanese travelers to the United States and to that? hypothetical question that I get asked quite a bit is no, <laughs> because it's a completely different type of clientele. It's true. <laughs> you know, just because I know how to deal with people who want to go to Japan from the US, Australia, Europe, Latin America, Africa, does not necessarily mean I know how to sell to Japanese people who want to go to the States. Also, you know, as a side note, I don't really know about the States as a destination, you know, <laughs> just because just I've lived here for so many years and been to a lot of places in the country doesn't mean I actually know how to quote unquote sell it. So, so yeah. I agree. I mean, similar with me. I mean, people think you're, in, yeah, you're in this country, you know, in a certain place and you can go both ways. I mean, there's always that cross, even what we talk about here to show cross border import export and, but yeah, I mean, it's to sell, like, yeah, I th at least we've been hinting towards in the show, like to sell to someone, you have to know them really well. And 
it's a little bit easier to be a buyer than a seller. To be a buyer, you're, you of course you got to know what you're buying, but to sell, I think you have to really more deeply understand and uh, understand them more than than being the customer. But yeah, and in a very different way, you know, because even if I know how to interact with Japanese people on a daily basis, and as a, I guess you could say as a buyer, I don't necessarily know what makes a Japanese traveler tick, you know, because I've never served that customer base. So it's I have true. really no idea. You know, I, I, I won't speak too much for Japan, but I think it might be similar. I think you might have to go, a lot of times with Chinese sales, you have to meet them face to face, sell at events, host events, uh, drink with them. It's not as bad as it used to be, but but uh, I'm not sure about, I have a feeling Japan might certain, somewhat be similar depending on the industry, but uh no, so, it is. It is similar for sure. Yeah, so people gotta take that in mind. I think a lot of FaceTime. More nice, FaceTime than yeah. That's the nice thing about uh, online business with the West. Westerners are much more easy to just buy online and uh, read the information that's there without having to do too much uh, high touch. Of course, there is still, but I think usually in Asia business, at least for China, is a little bit more. Of course, if it's B two C, but if it's if it's a little bit higher or a smaller B2C amount, but if it's a B2B or a higher ticket value B2C, they need to have much more uh, touch points, I guess is the word. Yeah, I understand. So, you know, we like to talk about company structure on the show. You know, we've people always are curious. So I guess you're selling internationally, so your company structure doesn't have to be... Do you have a... Represent the actual company registered in Japan, or are you registered in the U.S.? Or you know, some people register uh, different locations. I mean, if you're open to sharing your structure and reasoning, why we're great. we're just yeah, we're in the U.S. Cool. So that's yep. we're we're U.S. Uh, LLC. Great. Nothing yeah. fancy here. Great. So yeah, you can do that more easily because you're selling international, you know, globally, internationally. So you have the credit card processing or even bank transfers. Um, when your clients pay you, we go there and then you pay out your suppliers in Japan. I'm not sure. Maybe you probably can do it with uh, maybe even PayPal or bank transfers and stuff like that. I, you know, Exactly. Some of them take PayPal. Some of them, for sure, do a lot of wire transfers also. Yeah. You know, some of them accept credit cards. Of course, we work with some big hotels that are pretty easy to deal with. But we also work with some guides who aren't necessarily business savvy. They're just really good at their jobs. They're yeah. experts in a certain field, but they don't have, you know, a sophisticated business setup. So when we're lucky, they have PayPal. But yeah. sometimes we'll have to send, you know, a wire transfer where the fees are twenty five percent of the yeah, they kill cost you. of the service. Yeah, they kill you here. But uh, there are, I don't know about Japan specifically, but you know, even we have some sponsors on the show, like um, just to plug Aurelia Pay. They, uh, I'm not sure if they handle Japan, but there's these cross-border payments, kind of like uh, TransferWise and others that people use to at least try yeah, to Yeah, TransferWise is on our radar. But yeah, TransferWise is good. I don't know the other one you mentioned. Uh, it's Aurelia Pay. It's... More specialized in Southeast Asia and China. Uh, it's a newer startup. They're a sponsor in the show. So they're, you know, I use them for uh, paying into China from, like, say, Hong Kong 
they don't have a U.S. representation, so you might not be able to use them. They mostly help cross-border payments between Asia, Southeast Asia. Not sure if they support Japanese yen, but the idea is you can pay people in Vietnam or Philippines or China from, like, say, Hong Kong or the inverse too. So it just kind of reduces all these bank fees and yeah. you know these uh, hidden exchange rates that are horrible rates compared to the market. So there's definitely opportunities. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, international business, these banks just really get to, to rip us off. It's crazy. It's crazy. I had to make a payment the other day and I was about to hit submit and then yeah, I was just looking at the rate and thinking, I don't think that the recipient is going to want to receive this mo- this amount of money. You know, so I had to go back to the recipient and say, hey, you know, maybe we should try this other way. We yeah. ended up doing TransferWise instead. Oh, cool. Saved, you know, a bit of money. Um, took a little bit longer, but I think it was worth it because, yeah, it's crazy how much, yeah. you know, how much less they were going to receive. Really crazy. Or sometimes you can send either, either you can batch it so you can take a whole bunch of payments and send it like, once a month or twice a month, or you could even give them a credit, sometimes reduced depending on the size of the transactions. But yeah, I mean, this is where these guys make, these banks make the most on international business. So hopefully there's more startups and solutions people can find. So uh, nice. Yeah, man. it's a big cost. It's definitely a big cost of, of the business for sure. But yeah, just to kind of reflect on your structure. Yeah, I mean, I think people can get away with a US company for international business. Um, but I think if you're probably going to go the other way and sell to Japanese, probably be hard to do that. So I think just to kind of go back to earlier questions about your market. So I think if people are trying to sell in a local market, most likely they, maybe I'm wrong. If you want to say you think you could operate in Japan, sell to Japanese, I think you would need a Japanese structure. It's usually what I tell people is if you're trying to sell in a local market, most likely you You do, you would. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but from my understanding of how things work in Japan, if you're trying to sell in Japan, then you absolutely need a structure there. Yep. Cool, man. So we're getting towards the end. I really appreciate your time, and I'm so happy we got to do this interview. Um, but, you know, kind of just going towards now some of the challenges and tips for listeners to learn from. You know, what, what were some of the stumbling blocks that you found? I mean, it seems like you spent quite a few years learning the industry and learning the market and finding your 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 angle, um, which paid off, which we're happy to hear. Um, what were some challenges you could say that you faced? Well, I think one of the ongoing challenges has been keeping up with demand. And I think it's just a, ma- a case of maybe right time, right place. But Japan has just gotten so popular over the last few years awesome. that we literally haven't been able to keep up with demand that's a good problem (laughs) that's what people say that's what everyone says i don't to be a satisfying problem whatsoever um but you know hiring has been difficult not because we've had bad hires everyone that we've brought on has been great so it's just a matter of how difficult i've found it to onboard people and just i guess maybe Maybe it's just me, you know, maybe I'm a perfectionist or maybe I'm slow at hiring or maybe I'm a slow trainer or maybe it's just a really detail-oriented job and we're kind of obsessive. Um, but anyway, that, I would say that's been the biggest challenge is just keeping up. We're a team of, uh, including part-time contractors, there's eight of us right now. 
Nice. And we, we should be like 10 or 12 probably, but it's just so time consuming to, uh, you know, really go out and find a great person and then train them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I haven't cracked that code yet. You know, I feel like I wear less hats than I did on day one, you know, when I basically did almost everything, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense, had my hands in every department. Now, you know, I've I've delegated so many hats, so many departments, but that, that that's still the biggest challenge, I would say. True. So I think to boil it down, I think, well, management, you know, managing people is really challenging everywhere. And I know you've, I've even learned some from your, some of your talks, but yeah, I mean, standardizing is, you know, we talk, we, DC also, everybody loves these SOPs and stuff, but uh, you also seem to have really good systems in place, which does help, but even still, it's still dealing with other human beings. I sound bad, but, uh, you know, training, yeah, getting that information from your brain to another brain and to deal with all these different questions and, if this, then that kind of uh, choices is, is definitely a challenge. And I think it's fair to say, I think it takes six months, I think, for somebody to con- usually get fully up to speed. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but it's in my experience, it's maybe in a month or two, but really, I think to actually be able to run stuff without too much involvement uh, it does take quite some time. I think so. Yeah, I think it's it takes a really long time. and. I do think that we might have a slightly obsessive culture at our company as far as details are concerned for, which I think is good, um, you know, in a sense, because from the client's perspective, it means, you know, things aren't going to fall through the cracks, but it does just mean there are so many, if, if that's, you know, there's so many, yeah, our SOPs are Mm. so convoluted actually. It's one of our ongoing projects is simplifying our SOPs because we'll have, you know, a new person come on and get lost, like literally drown in some of the SOPs that were written maybe two years ago and just keep, we keep adding to them, but they need to be just gutted. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you relate, but I'm the same. I mean, it seems easier to make a new one than to go back and clean up an old one or you can't even sometimes find some and you're just like, screw it, I'll just make another one or you're not even sure if it's connected to the other one. Yeah, I know it's challenging. Oh yeah. I had that situation recently where, you know, I was asking one of my, so, you know, one of our independent contractors was doing something slightly incorrectly. I was like, can you find, you know, can you find an SOP where, you know, tell us how to do this? Cause I know that's not how (laughs) she's like, no, I can't find it. So I asked someone else and then, you know, she knew exactly where it was, but it was kind of hidden. It was like third bullet point. It was just such a random location. So yeah, luckily before uh, before our most recent full time hire, I took about two weeks to basically create all of the SOPs for for a certain role from scratch. And I mean, it wasn't a fun experience, but when I look at them now and see how clean and organized and simple they are, um, pretty satisfying. True. So yeah. It's interesting. I think, you know, when I started out, I thought more detail was better. But now I realize that it's just having like the right details. And then, you know, where to where to place now with enough people where certain knowledge doesn't necessarily have to be written in an SOP. Certain knowledge is actually just conveyed from human to human, you know? Yeah. 
It's just like anything in life. If it's easy, everybody would do it. And it's these details, what sets, I think, you know, it sets your business apart from, from the rest, right? So it seems like you're on the right track. And I think listeners don't realize, like, actually, I've written a few books and I haven't written a book in a while because I've told every, myself that SOPs are my company manual is my book. <laughs> and that's a huge book. It just never seems to end. That's I, hilarious. I've, in my mind, I've thought of that. If you printed it, it would probably be bigger than most of my books. Anyways. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's crazy. But cool. Uh, I think the... The last one or a couple, you know, maybe is somebody coming to Japan. I feel like maybe we kind of hinted towards this, but what's some good tips for somebody to enter the market there or do business there? Mm. I guess Lane, well, I mean, it seems like I, this, I will the, go, the language culture probably, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I will go back to, you know, what, what was it, Davide? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that learning some Japanese. Would go a long way, but I, I wouldn't obsess over that, you know, for sure. I think just learning some basic Japanese would definitely be helpful. Um, I mean, it's hard for me to answer a hypothetical question like that because yeah, I, my first tough, question would be like, well, which part of which part of the market do you want to, and, and why? Um, but I really do think it, it's so true. It really comes down to respect. You cannot go into Japan and say, oh, this is how we do things. You know, you're going to do things my way. You must look for harmony. And uh, you can you can absolutely, you know, be an assertive slash aggressive business person, but you have to kind of do it in a polite way, if that makes sense. Hmm. Agreed. This is where uh, Americans, yeah, Americans yeah, get in trouble a lot of times. I've seen before. Americans, yeah, make mistakes. Yeah, come in and just say, well, this is how we do it. You know, this is what we need. Using wording like that, yep. they're not going to get you. I love that. Yeah, I think uh, Americans usually have a bad name of going around the world thinking people have to listen to them or us or me you know like even i was thinking like that when i first came to china i was like i'm going to teach them how to do it the better way like i felt like i'll admit it myself you know i kind of had that in my mind when i first came out here so i think that's definitely great advice to be respectful of the culture and and uh and a, and a student in learning you know rather than a teacher you can still have i mean not to sound you know not to give people bad advice but i mean you can still have an agenda that you want to achieve but you just have to do it within their framework that's going to be a lot smoother you know if you 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 can't go in like slinging guns you gotta go in quietly respectfully and you know chip away agreed all right andres thanks so much and of course the website is boutiquejapan.com and people should definitely check it out. We'll link it up on the show notes. Is is there other ways people could find you or your business online that you'd like to share? I mean, the website is definitely the best, I suppose. You can find us on the social media, but, you know, website's great. I think Instagram is, you know, I don't know if your listeners are Instagram fans. That's the one that we're probably most active on, which makes sense for the travel industry because it's very visual um, but we are also on Facebook and Twitter. Nice. All right. Yeah, I'll look you up on Instagram. 
Well, it definitely seems like it makes sense for your business. People want to see the visual. Exactly. Very yeah. good. All right. Well, thanks again, Andres, for coming on. And uh, thanks for sharing. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, man. Okay, cheers. Still on the MTR. And this is the end of episode 219 of the Global From Asia interview series podcast. As always, we have huge stock photos, not stock photos, but profile photos of these amazing guests, as well as show notes and transcriptions. Rhea, I know you're listening because you transcribe these. You're doing amazing. Oban, I know you're listening because you're editing this, doing amazing. And the Honey Bell, keeping things on track and keeping my brain from exploding. And uh, many others, Cheryl posting it and we are trying our best to systematize this and grow this business as we get busier and busier. So for me, I got to get things going more smoothly for the cross-border summit planning. It's getting busier than ever. I had a great call with Brian Johnson, who's going to make it for the full time, doing a mastermind sessions with us and speaking and panels and all kinds of amazing stuff. Can head with us to Canton Fair too. And I can't wait till about a month from now. So crossbordersummit.com slash 2018. I hope this is clear enough. I am on a loud MTR, but this is a pretty decent microphone. Take care, buddy. Take care, everybody. And women, ladies, I know you're listening too, and sorry if I had this macho talk. Cheers. To get more info about running an international business, please visit our website at www.globalfromasia.com. That's www.globalfromasia.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to our iTunes feed. Thanks for tuning in.